I think that the most uh, simple reform would be creating an immigration czar position that coordinates between the different agencies, Department of Labor, Department of State, uh, DHS. They are doing repetitive things they don't need to be doing. Um, there's duplication of their authorities. There are conflicts between these agencies and having that I think would be a starting point. And maybe that is something realistic that we could look, look for. Welcome to another episode of Immigration and Mobility Decoded, a podcast about business immigration and global mobility. I am Eric, and joining me as always is my co-host, Finn. Finn, how's it going? Good, Eric. How are we doing today? Doing great, doing great. Have you uh, made the migration over to Instagram's threads yet? No, not quite yet. I'm holding out to see uh, see whatever happens with this <laughs> with this battle of the uh, battle of the industrial tech titans. Right, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait until the cage match is over before I before I choose which platform to use. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I've been seeing some good stuff that this is probably, you know, maybe the cage match re-envisioned and, 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 and so far it seems like, I think I just saw that they got 100 million signups and uh, I know you're a big, you're a big Twitter guy, Twitter guy, so I don't blame you for, for kind of seeing which one is which right now, which one to go to. I'm only a Twitter guy because that's where the people who I like to follow are and need to follow are, but I have no no alliance, no allegiance towards <laughs> the platform itself. So. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice. Well, uh, one of the I, I think uh, one of the for today's conversations, and just want to have you uh, tease 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 the episode a little bit, but uh, your conversation uh, that will be playing in a bit is uh, with Sam Peak. Um, yep. Yeah, can you just uh, tease that real quickly uh, before we hop on to another news item? Yeah, so so Sam and I chatted a couple weeks ago. Sam uh, is is a is policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, but he focuses mainly on immigration uh, and a lot of employment based immigration stuff, specifically economic immigration. Uh, so Sam, you know, has written op eds in the Wall Street Journal for the Hill. He's contributed to lots of other news sources uh, that that you would recognize. Uh, his area of focus, again, on the employment based immigration side. Uh, stems from high skilled to, to low skilled. He's, he is, you know, previous years has done a deep dive on uh, the H2 visa programs, H2A for agricultural workers, H2B. Uh, you'll hear a little bit about that in our conversation. Uh, he's also uh, been a big part of the, uh, the, the push to uh, um, ensure that, you know, so-called documented dreamers, which are the children of folks who are stuck, immigrants who are stuck in the green card backlog, who age out uh, past being a dependent uh, of their of their parents. Uh, he's been a big part of pushing, uh, you know, um, p- pushing the the, the the logic behind ensuring that those, you know, children, quote unquote, you know, they're, they're 18, 21 year old year olds um, are able to stay in the U.S., study here, seek employment, et cetera. Um, so lots of stuff that we talk about in that podcast. Sam's a really sharp guy. He really has his, his finger on the pulse of all things immigration policy, uh, reform, legislation. And it was great to chat with him and kind of hear what's going on in D.C. before the summer gets started. Totally, for sure. Yeah, and it sounds like you guys had a great, great uh, in-depth conversation. So very much looking forward to that. Uh, and then, uh, Finn, before we get to there, I did want to kind of pick your brain a little bit. Um on some recent immigration news and up on, with our neighbors up north in Canada, um, a couple days before our 4th of July holiday, 
news came out that the uh, Canadian uh, IRCC um, and their immigration minister were creating, unveiling a new program uh, geared toward the tech sector, um, and in particular, appealing to U.S. H-1B visa holders. Uh, very big news. Uh, very exciting news, um, particularly for Canada's continuing ambitions to you know, welcome more immigrants and meet their meet their goals that they've set um, through their immigration plans. So, Finn, can you break down this news for us and just you know what are your, what are your you know, I guess it's been a little two weeks, so I guess but we've been off. So your rapid reaction? Yeah, I mean, you know, Canada's been actively uh, poaching uh, U.S. high-skilled immigrant talent for a decade and a half now, right? Kind of famously, they started throwing billboards up in Silicon Valley about 10 years ago. Uh, the Canadian government started sponsoring, you know, throwing these billboards up on highways in Silicon Valley, you know, that, that read H-1B problems, question mark, you know, pivot to Canada, check out Canada, check out the options there. Um, and, and they've just taken a, a turn in the last couple of weeks to just be more blatantly outright about poaching uh, immigrant talent from the U.S. Um, and they, they created 10,000 new work permits, uh, I believe, for the next year uh, that are specifically for U.S. H-1B visa holders. Uh, it, it, you know, we're still waiting on more information about the program to, to come out and, and see what it looks like in practice. Um, but essentially, if, if you're someone who has an H-1B visa in the U.S., uh, maybe you're frustrated with how long it's taken to get a green card. Uh, maybe there are other issues, you know, other uncertainties in the immigration process for you. And, and you think it might make sense for you to move yourself or your family to Canada and take a role there. Uh, the Canadian government's making that very, very easy now. Um, they're essentially saying, hey, if you qualify for an H-1B, you qualify for this particular, you know, work pathway up here in Canada. So please come on up. Um, so it's, you know. It's, it's, it's twofold. One, it creates more options for, you know, creates more options for, for foreign talent who maybe are, you know, facing some of the, the difficulties that uh, some of the difficulties that, you know, are part of the course with the immigration process in the U.S. Um, so that's great for them that they have more options. On the flip side, not so great for the U.S. because we're already, you know, the data shows really in the last four or five years that we are not bringing in as much foreign talent. Uh, as as you know, um, in, in proportion to the population of people who actually want to come here uh, and to fill all of the the skills gaps that we have. So uh, you know, again, good news for 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 foreign nationals uh, who have more options. Not so good news for the U.S. as a whole uh, because Canada is just again continuing to take talent that would prefer to come here, but is fed up with all of the with all of the barriers that exist, which we we talk about pretty pretty regularly on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. No, I appreciate that breakdown. And yeah, not only is it good for foreign nationals, uh, it's also good, I, I think, for, for Canada's uh, continuing uh, attempts to appeal to businesses because now it, businesses have that uh, opportunity and, and, and to set up shop in Canada even more so. And I think there was uh, that breakdown by Stuart Anderson, which we can link in the notes. Um, Broke it down pretty good. It's 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 Canada's making that appeal for foreign nationals to everything you just said, and then companies set up shop. You mentioned obviously the big ones, you know, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, but even more so. Um yeah, so more to come on that. Uh really appreciate that breakdown. And it, it is it is a little bit, I guess, zooming out a little bit 
I don't know how to best describe it, but obviously Canada and the U.S. are, you know, super close allies. You know, they are the neighbors up north, um, very important allies. But then you do have Canada making moves like this, you know, wanting to in, in, uh, attract foreign nationals, particularly uh, those the H-1B visa holders that, you know, come to the U.S. and Canada's kind of um, jumping on some of the, the weaknesses of the U.S. immigration system. Yeah. Absolutely. So awesome. Yeah, uh, I think that is a perfect segue, uh, Finn, to your conversation with Sam Peake. And now I'd like to welcome Sam Peake, Senior Policy Analyst focused on immigration at Americans for Prosperity. Sam, how are you today? Thanks so much for joining us. I'm great. Thanks for having me, Finn. Sam, we're excited to dive into your, your, your brain, your, your knowledge of immigration policy and what you're working on. Uh, down in DC, and I know our audience will be super interested in, in hearing about all of that. But just to get started, want to introduce you to to our audience a little bit here. Now, I know you're based in DC now, but you're originally from from Kansas City. Now, if you're comparing food between the two places, what which is your favorite? Which 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 city hits it better for you? You know, I I don't know. Um, I would say that. I mean, DC has a lot of like the, uh, you know, has a great Thai scene. If I'm feeling like Thai food, I would say DC. Uh, but I mean, uh, Kansas City does have iconic barbecue in, in case uh, the audience, your audience doesn't know this. Um, Anthony Bourdain, he's got this list, uh, this global list of, I think it's at least like 10 restaurants from around the world. And uh, this place in Kansas City called uh joe's kansas city originally it was called oklahoma's joe's but um it's now called joe's kansas city but it's uh it's in kansas city uh, kansas uh it's inside of a gas station but that's on his list for places to eat before you die it's a just a, a gas station barbecue joint in kansas city uh i've been there and and it is delicious uh and i would have to say kansas city uh would for sure I'm gonna have to take a note of that because I'm doing a road trip, likely passing through Kansas City this summer. So it's gonna have to be gonna have to be on the stop list for me. I love good barbecue, and uh, as listeners know, I'm up in Maine, and I can't say we have great barbecue. Really good seafood, <laughs> but the barbecue game is is lacking here. Um, Sam, you've been you've been in in DC for a while. I'm sure you've had friends and family come come visit you. What's your favorite spot to take a visitor when uh, when they come visit you in Washington DC? So it's really not so much of the the tourist areas. I mean, uh, the reflecting pool is nice. Uh, uh, the memorials are nice, but uh, honestly, so there's this there's this place on U Street right across from Ben's Chili Bowl called the Saloon. You can go there uh, every Wednesday starting at seven. Uh, you you enter in. It's like this 1930s style place. It's got piano nights where all these uh, people from amateurs to experts are playing the piano uh, and you just get to watch them play the piano. You know, it's anything from them playing per, uh, uh, contemporary music, uh, like what's all, you know, like um, they, they might just like play EDM music on the piano or it might be, you know, classical music or it can be Frank, Frank Sinatra, but it's really, it's probably one of my favorite places to hang out or a uh, saloon, a uh, piano night every Wednesday. Uh, want to just transition into talking talking shop here a little bit um, and give the audience a sense of you know what you do for Americans for Prosperity, what you do for AFP, and how you got into researching and advocating uh, in the immigration policy space. Um, what was your career trajectory on that front? 
I mean, I, I started out not doing any immigration related work. You know, I, I, uh, I was trying to do something that I thought was practical. I was actually, uh, wanting to become a nurse at the time. Uh, I was, I was, uh, going to school for healthcare administration, getting my master's degree in that. Um, I, I was very interested in economics at the time too. I studied political science, um, for my undergraduate. Uh, I, I didn't really ever get rid of that bug. And so I was still reading, uh, and I came across the economics of immigration and how fascinating that was to me. I think that our intuitions are very much in that sort of zero sum mindset um, at first where we think that, oh yeah, these people, if they fill up jobs, then that means those are, there are fewer jobs for Americans. And then understanding that that's actually not true was just kind of a light bulb moment for me that, uh, that, that this, this, that that's incorrect to see people as just taking up space. They, we have to see them for what they create too. Maybe we're not primed to think that way about one another, but, um, but that even when they take, they're creating jobs because they're creating demand for more things to get done. But not only that, but they have new ideas. Uh, and, and that was sort of a light bulb moment for me is, is, is that, uh, is that people are a resource and it's probably the world's most important resource. And uh, I would say that sums up my philosophy in life. And that's why I'm invested in immigration, because I don't think that the majority of America or really the rest of the world see immigration that way. Yeah, no, I think that's a very astute observation about um, the impact immigration has on not just America, but any society. Um, and I imagine drives, uh, the motivation, uh, for, for the work that you do, which, and again, I want to get into some, some of the specific issue areas that you, you focus on, but, um, you know, one question I have for you is we're recording this in June. It's currently immigrant heritage month. And I know you have worked directly, um, with immigrants who have faced some of the challenges that the U S system, um, you know, unfortunately creates, uh, for, for folks going through that process, um, do you have any, you know, experiences from working with immigrants lately that really, um, really cemented that that philosophy that you just laid out of, wow, like, you know, this is a net good for for these are people who can come into the country, or maybe who are already here and are already providing a net good. Uh, and, and we should be more welcoming to that. Yeah. When you're not as much into the issue and when, when you're not interacting with, uh, you know, the immigrant community, it's easy to sort of see immigration as kind of an abstract concept. It's easy to see it maybe even as unnatural. Some people like to frame immigration as a government program and, and somehow without these government immigration programs that immigration wouldn't exist, but get, but getting to work alongside uh, these people and what they're advocating for, you start to see all of these case studies uh, that are kind of endless of just how natural and omnipresent immigration is and how we really take for granted all of the people who are here uh, on tenuous immigration statuses uh, and the the pillars that they build for the community. You know, uh, one example is that I, I got to learn about this uh, jeweler in Iowa who he he makes his own jewelry from scratch. It's a very European thing to do. Not very many people do that from in the United States anymore. They get their products from China, but people love his work. You know, he sits down with his clients. 
uh, and he uh, he modifies like the jewelry on his computer in real time, and they pick out what they want. Uh, and just these these very unique ways that they're able to contribute. They're bringing um, they're bringing a con- they're bringing a context from their own cultures, and then and then um, coming to America, and then finding that that's not here in America, and then filling the void. Uh, there's also the fact that people who make the effort to move in the first place, just, I think that pre-selects for ambition. If you're willing to come here, uh, I, I mean, not only does that show how exceptional America is as a country, but I think that it brings along, it just naturally brings along exceptional people. And so it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty humbling to see, you know, how, one person who I know, he's uh, a pharmacist and he is uh, one of the best, he's he's ranked as one of the best pharmacists for where he works, yet he's also, you know, doing full-time advocacy and just the the level of talent. Um, I, I know a, a medical device manufacturer who also is involved in advocacy and still um, being able to pursue her hobby in, in biomedical engineering. Uh, I mean, it's it's both a hobby and a career, right? But like, just seeing all of these people do so many different things. I mean, these are Renaissance people uh, in a lot of in a lot of a lot of ways, and um, you know the so immigration. It's valuable one because they're people, and in people, there in every person, there's potential. But two they they offer diversity of thought and context and uh that breeds innovation when i when when new ideas come together you create something new and that's sort of the way forward for progress and then three uh they're willing to come here in the first place right and and that shows ambition yeah no i, I appreciate you highlighting the, the human element of it right i mean folks like 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 you and i you know we pay it in, in your you do your own research on this front too but we pay attention to kind of all of the macro data around immigration. We, you know, see the number of, of folks who basically have to self-deport or aren't able to secure a visa and take their talents to other countries. And it's very frustrating, but I think highlighting those human stories really uh, accentuates the message of how um, how important immigration is at a ground level. And, and that's kind of something I want to ask you about. I know one of the issue areas uh, that you focused on in the past couple of years um, and have written several pieces uh, about, including in the Wall Street Journal, uh, is the importance of the H-2A visa program for the U.S. economy. Um, you're the expert on it, so I want to I wanna give the floor to you. Can you explain uh, to our audience what the H-2A visa is and why it's become such an essential staple of America's food system? Um, and then maybe, if I can tack on one other thing, the problems that currently exist with the H-2A visa program. Yeah, absolutely. So the H-2A visa, it really is one of the uh the most widely used work visa programs that does not require a college degree and you know the they're they're meant for agricultural workers so a lot of rural america uses them in order to use an h2a visa you have to first recruit, try to recruit an American to do the job that, and that's about a 60 day period. And you have to spend a lot of money on advertisements to do that. Uh, the, and you have to fill out all this paperwork. 
it's roughly about uh, 70 separate uh, application steps that all these agencies are reviewing. Um, the State Department uh, claims that it costs about $10,000 to bring over one H2A worker. Um, despite, though, how you know all the paperwork and all the costs required to bring over an H2A worker, employers still aren't finding, um, aren't able to find enough domestic workers. And they don't really want to use H2A workers necessarily. Uh, I mean, if they, they want to hire, uh, they want to hire any worker who's willing to do the job. But the H2A program has grown from uh, about 100,000 um, uh, H2A workers coming in and um, a decade ago to about 370,000 now, a bit more than that. But we've seen exponential growth in this program. And a big reason why we're, we're seeing that is because of the choices that Americans are making about where they want to live. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing a, a phenomenon where the local hiring options for American farmers in rural areas are becoming increasingly Im uh, limited. Their workers are getting old. The surrounding population is getting old. Young people are moving out uh, to urban areas where they see more opportunity for themselves. And so they're not able to find American workers uh, that are nearby that want to do the job anymore. And what a surprise that uh, people who are looking for opportunity here and they have not set their roots anywhere yet are willing to work in these uh these areas of america where the labor market is always tight um the problem there are a lot of problems with the hua program that can make it even more of a success story than it already is if these problems get fixed uh such problems are the the redundancies so you have u.s department of agriculture you have a state department you have department of labor you have department of homeland security and in order to uh, petition for a worker, you have to submit the same information to all these different agencies, and they they have their own separate approval processes for them. At any point along the way, you can get re uh, rejected, uh, and it's a lot. Of, but it's a lot of redundancy. It's a lot of it's a lot of time consumption, uh, and it's certain the, the the program would certainly be more widely used if it were streamlined. There's also just different interpretations on how these rules are being enforced. Uh, and, you know, so the state uh, Department of Labor might interpret one rule a certain way. The Federal Wage and Hour Division may have a different interpretation of that rule. I've spoken to farmers about this. Um, and, and one example that somebody gave is that during a DOL audit, uh, they, they said that they, the, they were instructed by the state uh, Department of Labor that they were supposed to compensate uh, their worker for travel once they got their visa stamped. Whereas the wage and hour division said that work, th that person is an, your employee even before they get the visa stamped and you have to pay for their travel to, uh, to the consulate for that. Uh, there are, there are disagreeing uh, interpretations on, do you always have to pay for uh, your HUA workers' housing? 
even if the H2A worker is living in Mexico and only coming to the U.S. to do work. Uh, I've learned from H2A farmers that they have empty housing that they're required to set up and no one is living in them because that's just what the regulations say. And so there's just a lot of confusion on, um, on these very minor things. And with such a complex program um, and in such a widely audited program, it's easy to ding employers for, for good faith mistakes. And so you, 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 you see these reports saying um, all this money in stolen wages from HOA workers. Yes, there are some unscrupulous employers. However, this is a highly complex program that's subject to a lot of audits. And so if, if an employer is, is, is subject to all of these requirements and there's a kind of a magnifying glass on them, it's really a result of greater transparency. Uh, unfortunately, it's resulted in some negative coverage, I think, of the HUA program that is unwarranted. Um, the, there's a little bit of concern or a lot of concern, really, that, that this program is the way it's being regulated is headed in the wrong direction a bit. Uh, so right now, there is uh, the, the wage that HUA workers uh, are paid. It's called the adverse effect wage rate. It's, uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the mean wage that American workers sim- that are similarly employed in the state are, are being paid in, um, in, in farming occupations. It's not by any means a perfect measure, but there is this recent regulation by Department of Labor that would that would um, add some more op- op- that would that would dissect the occupations that are um, that that farmers are hiring HUA workers for, and instead of simply being someone who is uh, a farm laborer. If one percent of their job is for is spent, for example, driving their colleagues down to the apple orchard to pick apples, they're going to now be classified as a chauffeur because they're doing quote chauffeur work, and because of that, they're entitled to a thirty percent higher wage. And the, these surveys, they don't use rural data; they use uh, the statewide data. And so, what ends up happening is that somebody who is spending 1% of their job driving, they're now being categorized as full-time New York City chauffeurs simply because uh, they had to do, simply because 1% of their job is doing that, is driving their workers down to the apple orchard. And to make matters even worse, all of their colleagues that are on that same petition with them will be classified as a chauffeur as well, even if they aren't involved in that occupation at all. And so it is, it's a big distortion of reality. Uh, Obviously we want workers to be paid as much as, as, as they can be paid, but you have to factor in different costs of living. Uh, You have to factor in what the farmer um, him or herself can afford and all these other things. Uh, And so you know, this is kind of a one size fits all solution. And, 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 and this quote solution ends up being a problem for people. And there are, there are ways to get around that, but those ways involve having to kind of finesse it by doing multiple petitions. 
So you have a bunch of, so you have petition for your, uh, for your, uh, quote chauffeur. And now you have a petition for your, uh, your apple pickers. Maybe you have another petition for your manager, just so you can kind of uh, stop the bleeding and, and, and be able to pay your workers accurate wages. But still, even then it's very weird if, if everyone's job is nearly identical, but one person is driving for them to be subject to that, uh, New York City chauffeur wage now. It doesn't really make much sense. And then finally, just the complexity of this. Uh, some farmers I've spoken to have said that they're going to have to hire more HR professionals, uh, more lawyers, uh, accountants, uh, just to be able to uh, implement this rule. So uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned about this. Uh, there's, a, there's an effort to overturn the rule led by folks uh, such as uh, Tim Scott uh, on the on the Senate side, um, uh, and Ralph Norman on the House side, and many people have signed on to it. There's also a bipartisan bill to uh, overturn the rule by Tom Tills and John Ossoff. And so, hope is not lost, but I do think that we're headed in a negative direction under uh, this regulatory environment. It's striking the contrast between you know where you started that explanation with with sort of where where it ended up going, right? The demand for H two A workers has only increased significantly, despite you know the robust red tape that's involved with bringing one of those workers over that you that you just outlined. I think folks in our audience, you know, who are who are more familiar with the H one B visa, you know, see a lot of parallels between um, having to navigate those regulations, having to potentially seek out additional help from HR professionals who are expertise in the area or, uh, or, or legal, uh, legal experts as well. Um, one, you know, and this, this isn't a direct solution, but um, I'm interested to get your, your thoughts on it. One, you know, proposal that I know you've been a proponent of the creation and expansion of it is the known employer pilot program and how that might be a solution to streamline, uh, you know, and help some of these employers bring in these workers in, in, a, in a more efficient and hopefully, you know, less uh, uncomfortable fashion. Uh, can you explain what that known employer pilot program is and sort of the progression uh, of it and where it is today? Yeah, definitely. So the known employer pilot program was something that was launched in 2016 and it ended in 2020. But essentially what it was, it, it's kind of like a TSA pre-check or a global entry for employers going through the uh, the visa petitioning process. If you're a repeat filer in the uh, the immigration system as an employer, then you should not have to have all of your information that determines your eligibility to sponsor somebody for a particular immigration benefit to be reassessed over and over again. And right, the 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 the, the justification for this program is that it saves. Uh, employer's time and money, and it conserves agency resources, and it's just something that we should have. Um, but the way it was implemented was a bit troublesome. Only seven employers had participated in the pilot. They were all fairly large employers, too. Um it didn't seem like USCIS really took the program very seriously given the way it was implemented. The, the program ended without explanation in 2020. USCIS uh, months later posted an explanation for why it ended. They claimed it did not uh, succeed in saving agency resources. 
and it in fact uh actually made it harder uh to uh to use resources widely because of all of the resources and time that adjudicators needed to spend determining employer eligibility in the program for the first place. But on pawn, um, the Freedom of Information um, Act request that uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation did uh, with this program, we saw that it took uh, roughly six months for these USCIS adjudicators to determine whether whether um, they were eligible or not. And despite this lengthy decision-making process, their explanation for ending the program was that it was so obvious that they were eligible in the first place that the pre-certifications did not speed up the uh, the adjudications of their petitions. So how can it be that they are spending all this time determining their eligibility and then saying that their eligibility is, is so was so readily apparent that these pre-certifications aren't improving things. So it sounds like there, there wasn't a good faith implementation of this program and that we need to uh, try something that's similar, if not the known employer program, something that operates in the spirit of that. Um, uh, there were a lot of features of this program that weren't explored. One example is... Uh, the ability to, to pre-certify yourself for for H-1B cap exempt status. So nonprofit research institutions um, and other uh, other uh, academic institutions can qualify for um, the H-1B cap uh, exemption. In the private sector, H-1B H-1Bs are capped at uh, eighty five thousand uh, per year, I believe. But um, you can get around that cap if you're a resource organization, and um, However, a lot of hospitals are being denied their H-1B cap exempt status. Uh, a lot of hospital staffing firms are having trouble uh, because, you know, I think recently USCIS, somewhat recently USCIS changed uh, how they, the, the level of scrutiny needed to determine uh the qualifying relationship with an academic or research institution and um and 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 whether or not they're eligible and so it used to be that a staffing firm could show on the website hey we you know we have a this this uh, school and hospital they have a relationship with each other and now USCIS is saying that this website is promotional material what we really need is we need the actual contract and it's just it's a hassle uh, for staffing firms who are third party. Um, they're you know they're they're third parties, and now they're having to ask uh, hospital systems for for these agreements. And risk averse legal teams are very hesitant and confused about why they have to give up those documents. There's also uh, looking forward, the Chips and Science Act had uh, established these regional innovation hubs for. Um, for semiconductor production and being able to have certainty that these uh, regional hubs, which are going to be a hodgepodge of agencies um, and uh, nonprofit institutions and, and private sectors all collaborating together, making sure that there is uh, H-1B cap exempt eligibility for these hubs is also going to be important. And a known employer program can really facilitate that. There's also... The um, 
the the enormous benefits that that companies with fewer than 100 employees could experience from a um, from the pre-certifications of a known employer program. For example, if you're a, a large firm, you're you're able to prove your ability to pay the proffered wage uh, that that you're promising the the uh, the employee simply by having your CFO write a letter to uh, the agency. If you're um, if you're a smaller company. You're going to have to submit dozens and dozens of, uh, of 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 tax returns, stock purchase agreements, a lot of uh, information that the agency's already seen about you. It it's 200 plus pages of information that's being re-reviewed over and over again. Uh, that's that's a waste, and and small companies should be able to have an option like that to um, to streamline the process for themselves. Uh, if you're a startup, being able to pre-certify your legitimacy, um, USCIS is not a fan of um, of virtual offices. And be and if you're if you've already filed petitions and you've already proven your legitimacy despite having a virtual office, that should be okay. You should be able to pre-certify your legitimacy there. Um, there's just a lot. Uh, of good that can be done uh, with a program like this. I think that the pre-certification the pre-certifications can be expanded further for job uh for 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 job classifications and determining that those job classifications align with uh the visa requirements that uh the employer is trying to hire them for. You know, for example, if um if you're a large employer and you're sponsoring someone for an H-1B petition, you're you're not subject to that much scrutiny based off of your previous hiring and and, and other factors um, to determine whether or not uh, the requirements that you have for this job warrant an H-1B visa. If you're a smaller employer with, again, fewer than 100 employees generally, uh, your, your lawyer is probably going to have to do a bunch of things like... Um, write a complexity letter showing just how complex this job is. Maybe throw in a lot of, a lot of coding that the agents that the USCIS adjudicators don't quite understand, but saying, Hey, this is a really complex job. Um, and only a person with a master's in, um, in, um, uh, in computer science can do this job. Uh, so here's this complexity letter to show them this, or if you're hiring someone for an L1, uh, uh, position you have to you have to show all of these uh proof points that this person has uh hiring and firing um capabilities or or at least being able to show that they have the ability to uh deliver uh employee recommendations and consequences and that they that they have some sort of um authority over that and so it's a lot of weird things they have to submit like copies of meeting minutes organizational charts uh all of all of these internal documents that again the agency has already had but they're just having to keep they're just going to have to continue to keep giving them the same documents over and over again 
and it, and it piles up and it wastes time and it wastes costs. And um, this should be a really basic thing. I know other countries have similar, have similar um, programs, but I mean, this is just a basic way for us to move in the 21st century on immigration. Yeah, man, I early in my career, I was an immigration paralegal for a few years, and I spent a lot of time working with companies on drafting those those L1A and L1B letters of support and the level of detail that you have to include to, you know, just try to stave off a request for evidence from USCIS is is quite insane. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you mentioned this before, but there's different standards for different agencies and there's different guidance, you know, between Department of State and USCIS and who's reviewing the petition and what they're looking for. And um, you know, one thing I wanted to I wanted to spotlight that you said uh, earlier on was that Americans for Prosperity um, submitted a FOIA request, a Freedom uh, of Information Act uh, request, uh, to get more information on what happened in this pilot program. And I just want to spotlight to our audience that you know groups like AFP, uh, we've talked to you know the folks at Scannon on the podcast as well before, Cecilia Esterline over there. That work that you're doing when you're when you're engaging these agencies and you're questioning uh, their processes and you're trying to pull the curtain back on those processes is what causes these, you know, reforms that we've seen over the last couple of years, these positive reforms uh, that USCIS ends up making. So the work you're doing is super, super important. Um, and I think the folks that, that are in our audience, you know, may not, may see the fruits of your labor, but may not know where, where, where that came from. So um, that that's one thing I want to really call out for, for our audience. Um, I want to be cautious of your time here, but one thing I was really excited to ask you about um, is, is you've sort of been a megaphone for uh, this group of individuals who are stuck in um, one of the U.S.'s many, um, you know, immigration uh, pits, which are documented dreamers. Uh, can you explain to the audience, and, and again, a lot of our folks will probably have heard personal anecdotes about who documented dreamers are. But can you explain to the audience what a documented dreamer is and what the what the uh, the issues that those those folks are facing uh, currently are? Yeah, absolutely. So people are familiar with what a dreamer is, which are people who they were brought here by their parents. Uh, either they had the misfortune of having to enter unlawfully or they may have uh, overstayed their visa and become unlawfully present. Uh, so their fate is tragic because they have to, uh, if, if, if the law is not fixed and if DACA gets rescinded, they have to uh, often go home to a country they barely remember. Uh, may, they may not even speak the language. But little do a lot of people uh, who are not familiar with immigration law know is that you can abide by uh, the the law and have a good fortune to follow everything by the book and still find yourself uh, or your children in that predicament. And so they're called documented dreamers is because, because they face a fate similar to dreamers despite not having been unlawfully present. And I'm sure the, your listeners will know some of the ways that people can up can end up in the situation. One common way is if you're the dependent of uh, an H1B holder who has been applying, who has applied for a green card and they're waiting in the queue. Um, as, as we all know, the, uh, the green card line for employment-based visas for Indians is, is enormous. There's also a lack of clarity 
with a visa bulletin about when people are going to get their their visa. Sometimes it's off by a matter of years uh, because USCIS can't always estimate the number of um, uh, of dependents that are that are in the system. And so, um, uh, you know, as, as we know, uh, dependents take up a lot of the employment-based green card space. And so there's just a lot of uh, problems with how, they acu- uh, with how they estimate it. But people have no idea how long they're waiting oftentimes, even though they have a priority date. And so this leads to this tragic situation where you can bring someone over when they're several months old um, and you're on your uh, work visa or your student visa you eventually get sponsored for a green card. Your child uh, experiences their uh, their adolescence, uh, their early adulthood, uh, and they're still in the green card queue, still in the green card line. Once they turn 21, their dependent status expires. And because the green card line is so long, they aged out of their legal status without having secured a green card yet, even though they were expected to secure a green card. And so uh, they have to hop from visa to visa. Maybe they get a student visa. Maybe they find some other temporary visa. But at the end of the day, this musical chairs of these different visas can come to an end and they may eventually have to leave the country. Um, There is the H-1B lottery which a lot of their parents have, have um, benefited from, and that's how they started their immigration journey in the U.S., um, is a possibility for them. My understanding is that there's like a 15% chance of securing an H-1B visa through the H-1B lottery. Not to mention, you have to find an employer willing to sponsor the to, to sponsor you and pay the thousands of dollars to sponsor you. You're fresh out of college, or maybe you have a few years of experience through the OPT program or whatever, but you're still you're pretty green to the, the, the industry. Right. And so the employer might not think it's worth to may not think it's worth it to go through the lottery and take a risk for you, um, and pay you this prevailing wage rate that, uh, is often, uh, near six figures, you know? Um, and so this lottery just does not cut it for, to allow people to remain in the U S and, um, so that's one way. The other, the other um, way that people end up in this predicament is maybe they came on an E2 visa, which uh, it's an investor visa, as many of your listeners know. Um, uh, there's no pathway for these kinds of visas, really no direct pathway to get a green card. Um, you can start your business on an E2 visa um, and it could be successful, but our immigration system doesn't really allow you to use your own enterprise to sponsor uh, yourself and your family for a green card. There are some cases if it's, if the government finds it in the national interest to do it, then, you know, that that's a, that's another thing they can qualify for a national interest waiver. But if you run a successful coffee shop, if you run a successful jewelry store, uh, if you run a successful convenience store or a successful dairy farm, you don't have a, a clear pathway for you and your children to have a permanent place in this country. Yes, you as the business owner can renew your E2 status over and over again, but your kids, they age out and um and their their future is uncertain. And our immigration system is so complex that that 
that uh, people don't really realize that they are in these predicaments until it's too late. Um, there is um, there there's this expectation that yes, the immigration system is cumbersome, but if my kids work hard, then they can then they can get through it. Unfortunately, it's a lot more complicated than that, and uh, and you don't realize that until the rubber meets the road because no one is following these things so closely. And for good reason, because we all have lives to live. Yeah, no, it's 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 incredibly frustrating. You know, if you're an H-1B visa holder and you, specifically if you're an Indian national and you're here and you work hard and you get a green card sponsorship early on, you know, from a company because they value you and they want you to stay and they want you to, you know, have the chance to, to be a permanent resident here. And you have a daughter or son or child who's on, you know, an age four you're just watching that visa bulletin move in the wrong direction for you. And you're just waiting in that backlog. And all of a sudden your daughter, or your son is, you know, 18, 19, 21 years old. And then they may have to go in order for them to stay. They may have to go through the same ringer that you had to go through, like going through the H1B lottery, potentially, like you mentioned, right. In order to stay here. So it's an incredibly frustrating, uh, uh, happening that's going on on that front and, um, paralleling, you know, you mentioned earlier the demand for how the demand has increased for H-2A visa holders. Our Envoy's Immigration Trends Survey from a couple of months back found that employers are starting green card applications for their employees far sooner than ever before. It's about 40 to 50% of employers that we surveyed said they're starting green card applications immediately. You know, five, six, seven years ago, employers were usually waiting you know, about three years after an employee started to start that green card sponsorship process, and they're starting it sooner than ever before, despite all of the delays and the red tape and the uncertainty around it. Um, so the demand for to, to, to ensure a place for these for these, you know, hardworking people and their families in the US, uh, these employees is, is there. Um, you know, we've we've had in this conversation, we've outlined a lot of problems, obviously, in the immigration system. Um, and you've, you know, touched on a couple of potential solutions. But I know you follow very closely what goes on on Capitol Hill. Uh, there's been some buzz around some immigration legislation as of uh, as of late in the last month or two, the Bipartisan Dignity Act, um, the America's Children's Act, I think I'm getting that correctly, um, which I believe AFP has, has endorsed. Um, I, I'll leave this as kind of the final question more open-ended for you, right? But there's what the agencies can do at the, on the in the executive branch to make improvements to the immigration system. Right. But those may only be band-aids, quite frankly. They may not be long-term solutions. And then there's legislation that can impact the system as a whole. Uh, what are you most optimistic about going forward? Do you think that any of these provisions, any of these solutions that we've talked about today have a chance of becoming law or, you know, the rules changing at the agency level? Um, and if so, what what are those? Everything has a small chance of becoming law. Um as we know, uh, Congress is in a crisis of gridlock and has been for uh, uh, these past few decades, especially on uh, these issues like immigration. Um, the the Dignity Act is encouraging, not necessarily uh, because it's going to pass, but what bipartisan members of Congress are still willing to sign on to. It has uh, compromises for asylum reform. It creates these things called humanitarian campuses where people uh, get their asylum claims and uh, heard in roughly 60 days. 
it's they're, they're they're not being detained, but there's still a limited parameter for them to operate in um, freely, and it's and it's a nice compromise that we're seeing, and the fact that we're seeing compromises on the on a hot button issue like immigration, and on the hottest button issues within immigration like asylum, that's very encouraging. It's very encouraging to see that the employment based side of immigration isn't forgotten about. Um, the Dignity Act has a lot of reforms for green cards. It expands um, O-1 eligibility uh, for those with extraordinary ability for um, people who are STEM PhD graduates of U.S. institutions. It exempts uh, derivatives from the employment-based green card caps. It makes it so that if you've been waiting the green card backlog for 10 years, that you can adjust your status. And so there's a lot of great uh, employment-based visas, uh, or sorry, employment-based visa reforms that um that are that are that have not been forgotten about and that's very helpful because generally it's legalization and border and the uh the employment side of things can can often get thrown under the bus so it's great to see the inclusion of that um the america's children act i'm very optimistic about it is a solution to the documented dreamers that we talked about a little earlier um it'll if if they've if they have been brought to the country um uh when they were um un before they are an adolescent and they've spent uh, roughly a decade in the U.S. The, um, of continuous lawful presence, then they are able to um, adjust their status to a green card uh, after graduating from uh, a U.S. institution of higher education. They um, It also makes it so that when a child um, turns 21, that that the immigration system recognizes their age uh, from the date that their parent filed for a green card, not uh, the date for when they turn 21, which makes, which makes sense to freeze that age um, at that relevant point in time. It also makes it so uh, that uh, after a child turns 21, they are entitled to, um, to the ability to work. And so you're giving, you're giving people time and uh, and freedom to be able to find um, their own way to adjust their status to a green card instead of just kind of being kicked out of the country or gambling with the U.S. immigration, literally gambling through a lottery to to, to remain here. And that's, that's a sensible reform. A lot of Republicans have signed on um, in the Senate. Rand Paul uh, from Kentucky and Alex Padilla from California are championing it. Uh, we've got a lot of sponsors in the House. It's being led by Marionette Miller Meeks, who's been very passionate about this bill, alongside Deborah Ross, who has been working very bipartisan on this. And so um, I'm I'm proud of the work that that we've done with this bill. I'm proud of the work that the advocacy group um, of Document Dreamers called Improve the Dream has done with this bill. Uh, and I'm really optimistic to see um, uh, a reform like this move forward. Well, Sam, I could pick your brain for several more hours, but uh, I want to be uh, aware of your time here. So just any any final thoughts that you wanted to share with the audience, anything we didn't hit on? or uh, And then also, where, where can the audience follow you? I can speak from personal experience that you are a great follow on Twitter to keep up with all things immigration related. But anything else you wanted to plug? I think that the most uh, simple reform would be creating an immigration czar position that coordinates between the different agencies. Department of Labor, Department of State. Uh, DHS, they are doing repetitive things they don't need to be doing. Um, there's duplication of their authorities. 
there are conflicts between these agencies and having that I think would be a starting point. And maybe that is something realistic that we could look, look for. Um, that's also something in, in the, in the dignity act. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at speak Samuel, um, speak my, if, if you guys don't know, it's a, uh, it's a play on my name. Uh, my last name's peak first initial is S speak Samuel, uh, um, at speak Samuel, uh, for Twitter. All right, man. Well, I hope we uh, get the chance to have you on again soon. Uh, obviously, the immigration space is is both a slow-moving uh, space and a fast-moving one. So we'd love to get your insights again and share them with our audience. Really appreciate you being here, Sam. Um, and, and, and thanks so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Immigration and Mobility Decoded. Uh, if you watched this video on YouTube and you enjoyed it, please hit the like button and consider subscribing to the Envoy Global YouTube channel for more content like this. Uh, otherwise, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone.